Hey, writers, join our first draft weekly writers club. We meet every Tuesday from 12 to 1 Eastern time. For more information, go to writingclassradio.com and click on the classes tab. This is Writing Class Radio, where you'll hear true personal stories from the students in our class and a little bit about how to write your own stories. I'm Allison Langer, a student in the class. I'm Andrea Askowitz, the teacher of the class. Together we produce this podcast, which is equal parts heart and art. By heart, we mean the truth in a story. By art, we mean the craft of writing. No matter what's going on in our lives, writing class is where we tell the truth. It's where we work out our shit and figure out who we are. There's no better place in the world like writing class, and we want to bring you in. Before we get started, we want you to know that this is our first class of season five. We are in our fifth season. Woohoo! <laughs> I know. And we're getting organized. We're going to follow a schedule and release a new episode on the first Wednesday of every month. Today we're talking about moments. Going to a moment is another way of saying go to a scene. And the reason that you go to scenes is because scenes are like movies. Scenes are like that part of a story where the whole story comes to life. And that's the part of the story that the reader or the listener remembers. So a good technique for writers is to go to a moment and flesh out a scene. Think of the moment everything changed, or the moment you wish you could do over, or the moment you knew something. Allison's really good at going to a moment. So here, Allison, I want to put you on the spot. I want you to describe a moment that describes or illustrates something specific. So I know, based on all your writing and based on being your friend, that you have like a complicated relationship with your son, Sloan. So Sloan, for your radio, our radio listeners, is Allison's youngest son. He is seven years old. So, okay, take us to a moment that shows us something very specific about Sloan. So let's see. So one time, Sloan and I went for a skate. And we were skating, and I tripped. Like, crossing the road, I sort of stumbled over this rock. And um, he <laughs> he's like, oh, my God, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm good. I, like, caught myself. I didn't fall on the ground. And he's like, oh, my God, you could have really fallen. And then you got run over and smushed. And I was like, oh, my God, what would you have done? He thought for a second, and he goes, I'd go home and get one of Blake's cooker books and cook me up some lunch. Oh, that's funny. That is a very illustrative, though, illustrative moment of what Sloan is like. Precocious. He's funny. He's think- well, he's, a, he's he's a free spirit. I mean, I really think he doesn't live in the box. There's probably a bigger story here. And maybe the story utilizing that moment is a story about how Sloan and mom, Allison, are both free spirits, are both think outside the box, are both um, going to go home and just make lunch. Going to a moment is a storytelling technique that requires the narrator to first remember something dramatic or important and then paint a scene. This technique works in memoir writing, in college essays, or in your business marketing materials. So when I work with entrepreneurs or philanthropists, I love to give the prompt, the moment you realized this work was right for you. What happens in this, as a result of this prompt, is students come up with really visual ways to show how important their work is. And this is especially compelling or much more compelling than 
throwing out statistics or facts or numbers because who wants to hear about that? Yeah, no, because we trust people when we hear their story. We want to hear why they love something so much. And as soon as we know why they love it, then we love it too. They're not, we don't want to hear the statistics because that's just business. We want personal. And when we get personal with other people, they're attracted to us and they connect with us and they want to buy whatever it is we're selling. They want to hire us. They want us to come to their college. They want to be our friend. Everything. Everything happens great when you're telling the truth. And that starts with the moments. The moment you lost your will. A time you lied. A time you fucked up. That's my favorite prompt. These are just examples of, of ways to get to the moments that matter to you. If you remember a moment from childhood or last week or whenever, there's probably a reason. There's probably a story there. Our job as writers is to discover why these moments have stayed with us. The first story we want to share is by Karen Collazo. She is a student in our class and goes to a moment where she remembers another moment. Here's Karen's story. He removes the first item from my tan leather Kohan, the handbag that I purchased as a gift to myself when I landed that six-figure account director job at Leo Burnett. He sets the item gently on the desk, a pair of Coach Aviator sunglasses. One pair of golasses, he says as he writes it down on the form in front of him. We're sitting in a 5 by 5 gray room. There's one metal desk, one dusty old black computer, two plastic chairs, and right below the ceiling is a security camera pointed directly at me. He pulls out my iPhone, which is protected by a fuchsia Kate Spade case. One cell phone with cover, he says. He writes this down too. One wallet, he says, of my light pink Rebecca Minkoff leather wristlet from the spring collection. He looks up and makes eye contact. Don't worry, you don't need these things inside and you'll get them back when you're discharged. I'm a patient being processed at the Palm Partners Detox Facility in West Palm Beach, Florida. My tech is wearing navy blue nurse's scrubs and black Reebok sneakers. His demeanor is friendly and his smile is bright. White dazzling chiclets out of place in this dreary environment. I'm wearing true religion skinny jeans with a black Calvin Klein silk blouse and Tory Burch flats. I wasn't sure what to wear for my first day in rehab, but somehow I knew not to accessorize. My ears, neck, and wrists are naked. I'm still not convinced I'm a drug addict. I have a successful career that takes me all over the world. I have a brand new Honda Civic that is current on its payments. I live in a renovated three-bedroom condo with marble countertops and stainless steel appliances. I pay my student loans. I get my hair done at an expensive salon every weekend. An actual drug addict doesn't have any of these things. A truly afflicted person would not have the clarity of mind to submit herself to three hours under the blower. I start to bite my freshly manicured nails and reconsider my decision to voluntarily commit myself. When my therapist suggested I consider rehab, I hadn't fully yet committed to the idea, but I started researching local options. Then I came across the Orchid Recovery Center, and suddenly rehab didn't seem so bad. It looked like a spa retreat on the hills of Ixtapa, Mexico, one of my all-time favorite vacation spots. The brochure featured zen-like images of women doing yoga, a garden lined with bamboo trees, orchids everywhere, and a large bronze Ganesh statue in the center of a gazebo 
where the women would gather to heal and enjoy a cup of coffee, preferably a Rainforest Alliance Arabica blend from Costa Rica. I was sold when I read there was a pool. I signed up for a quickie 14-day treatment plan, thinking it would be a nice little break from it all. I told everyone at work that I was going to visit family in Cuba. It provided a good excuse for why I would not be able to answer any emails while I was on vacation. And all I had to do was order expensive Cuban cigars from a Swedish company online and bring them to the office on my first day back. A blonde woman shuffles past the door and her frail body is hidden beneath an oversized Miami Heat t-shirt and gray sweatpants. She's wearing black socks with flip-flops. Cigarette in hand, she reaches for the front door. A guard who's been pacing in the lobby quickly catches her hand before it touches the door handle. I notice the track marks. You don't have permission to go outside, he says. Come on, man, I just want to drag in my fucking cigarette, she says. I wonder if I will have access to the outside world. Special privileges since I'm clearly more put together than this woman. After my purse has been emptied, a short mousy woman escorts me to the nurse's station. The nurse's station is cheery by comparison, but not an orchid in sight. The floor is beige linoleum and the walls are painted a dull peach. No Buddha fountains visible here. We walk past several open doors that provide a sneak preview of what my home will be for the next few days. The rooms are simple, one twin bed with taupe bedding and a cheap engineered wood headboard, one small matching nightstand, and one brown leather chair. Each room has a tiny one-by-one-foot sealed window that faces the parking lot and a small flat-screen TV. Everyone is eating breakfast in the mess hall. The small talk and laughter that travels back to the dorm rooms are barely audible over the sound of someone's television, which is playing cops. We turn the corner, past the closed pharmacy window, and enter a handicap stall in the shared women's bathroom. We need a urine sample. Use this, the nurse says as she hands me a plastic cup. I nod, but I stare at her expectantly. I'm not going anywhere, hun. I need to be with you when you pee into that cup. Seriously, I ask? What the fuck have I got myself into? I'm not a criminal. The nurse is not budging. I push the discomfort aside, let out a defeated sigh, and follow instructions. All the tests come back negative. It's been six months since I lasted Molly, three months since I snorted coke, a month since I smoked pot, and a week since I've had a drink. I hadn't intentionally stopped in anticipation of rehab. I was just going through one of my usual funks a steady and progressive escalation of my depression, which spikes every few months. Depression drains me of the energy required to keep up appearances and forces me to check out from my personal life. I stop returning calls, disappear from Facebook, and cancel any and all plans made with friends. I use work as my excuse and hold up in my apartment when I'm not in the office. I oversleep, I overeat, I wallow. During these episodes, I don't use drugs. I can't bring myself to do drugs alone. That is what drug addicts do. I, on the other hand, partake only in social settings. Without the social calls to make, there's no excuse for drugs. After a few months, when my body has excreted all the hopelessness it had stored, I emerge ready to engage with the world again. The on-site psychiatrist meets me in her tiny office. 
She informs me that since I tested negative for drugs and alcohol, I will be moved immediately into the treatment center, the spa-like resort for well-to-do addicts, the ORCID. However, because it's after 10 a.m., I'll need to spend one night in detox with the general population. It's standard procedure. She asks a series of medical questions, and we discuss my dual diagnosis, drug addiction and bipolar depression. I ask if it's possible for them to give me something for anxiety. I've been short of breath since I walked through the front doors of the facility, and I can't stop fidgeting with my hands and shifting in my seat. She logs in a request for an anxiety suppressant in her computer and assures me that it will help me relax. On my way to my room, I pick up the two yellow pills at the pharmacy window and throw them back with icy cold water from the cooler. I decide I'm hungry and head over to the dining hall. The walls and furniture are all the same boring peach. On the right-hand side, there's a glass partition that allows the text to observe the common area from a safe space. I'm wondering if the glass is bulletproof when a girl interrupts my thought by walking past the window. She's tall, lean, and tan with deep green eyes and beautiful straight auburn hair that reaches all the way down to her waist. She's wearing leopard print tights and a dark purple sweater. We exchange friendly smiles. On the left-hand side is the buffet station, which is reminiscent of an elementary school cafeteria. A messy stack of plastic orange and blue trays are arranged at the start of the line. A man who introduces himself as a fellow recovering addict and is missing all his teeth stands ready to serve food. It's now lunchtime. We have a choice of Salisbury steak, chicken pot pie, and Caesar salad. My stomach does a tiny flip. We have leftover baked goods and fruit from this morning if you want something lighter. Or there's the cereal station, says the server, as he points to a large dispenser in the corner, filled with all the sugary cereals of my childhood dreams. Frosted flakes, fruity pebbles, cocoa puffs, cinnamon toast crunch, and raisin bran. I'll take a raspberry Danish and banana, thanks. It's like a walk-in freezer in this facility, and the patients are shivering, including me. The socks with sandals finally make sense. A skinny guy jumps up from his lunch and rushes over to the large garbage bin next to the coffee station. He vomits violently, and it echoes across the room. I realize that some of us may not be shivering from the cold. I sit on an empty four-top table. I pull a chair out and the red-headed girl approaches. Do you mind if I sit with you? She asks. No, not at all. Hi, I'm Karen, I say. I'm Ashley, she says with a smile. What's your DOC? My what? Your DOC, it means drug of choice. Mine used to be coke and then after my last time in rehab, I went back out and tried heroin for the first time. So now I'm here for both. So what's your DOC? I guess my DOC is coke, but sometimes it's alcohol, other times it's pills, I guess it varies. Uh, how old are you? I'm 19, she said. And how many times have you been to rehab? Well, this is my fourth time here. I started coming when I was 16. My parents were worried that I was partying too much. I didn't think it was a big deal, but then I kept relapsing. The last time here I thought was going to be my last, but then I tried heroin with my ex. I never thought I'd be here for heroin, but here I am. She continues to tell me about her current situation while I sit there feeling all sorts of emotions at once. Based on how these things usually go, the statistics I've read in the articles that pop up on my iPhone while I scan Facebook, this young, vibrant woman will probably not make it. Suddenly, I start to mourn for her and my teenage self, who once partied too much and had parents that worried. 
The only thing separating us, besides being 10 years older, is that I've never tried heroin. At a Halloween party during college, a friend once asked if I'd try it. In one of those rare moments of drunken clarity where the words you speak are truer than you mean them to be and later haunt you with their indiscriminate foresight, I said I never would because I may never come back from it. At 21, early in the game, when I still considered it partying and not drug abuse, much less addiction, I instinctually knew something about myself that sitting in this detox center... I was having a hard time admitting I'm an addict, regardless of how I dress it up on the outside. Look on her face, tells me she's out of place. Heaven must have dropped her somewhere far from her natural space. And I must tip my hat to God for this one Who made her rain say this good and there was morning sun She's never been good but she came She's the best Wow God, it's hard to even talk about um, Her writing, let's just start there is um God, every time she describes a scene, it just gets richer and richer. So it's obvious that she's in it and we're in it and we feel it. And it's all because she's pulling us in. And that's it's super powerful. Yep. Yeah. This is the moment that Karen figures out that she's a drug addict. It's. And it was, it's so hard for her to admit. Yeah, I was going to say, I think she's figured it out. But I think it's just to hear her voice say it and right. to say it and write it and read it and all that and is hard. She's not just feeling it. She's talking about it. But the beauty of her actually saying, I failed. I did this. I This is my experience. Now she can move forward. She can figure out where to go from here. She's not hiding from it anymore. Such a beautiful writer. I just want to say thank you to Karen because that's not easy. <laughs> That shit is not easy to share. Well, what Karen did was both brave and good writing. She stayed in that moment. The moment where she's telling us about that 19-year-old girl, which then triggers her own memory of her own self at that age. And she didn't rush away from that moment. So beautiful. Before we get to our next story, here's a word from our sponsor. All right, back to our show. Today we're talking about building a story around a moment. Next up is Luis Aracena. Luis is one of my students at Dade Correctional Institution. As many of our listeners may know, I've been teaching memoir writing at Dade Correctional as a facilitator with Exchange for Change. In class, I gave the prompt, The Moment Everything Changed. Up next, Luis Aracena reads his story, American Hero. In December of 2001, I voluntarily headed to Afghanistan in the wake of the terrorist attack on the Twin Towers on September 11. I was proud and honored to serve my country. I felt my life had purpose. I was often treated to many rounds of beer, despite being only 18 years old, by people who would pat me on the back and say, way to go, Luis, you are a true patriot. I was encouraged by that type of affirmation. I even dared to believe that I belonged to a class of people that made a difference in America, 
like a policeman or a firefighter. As a kid, I always wanted to be a member of the Justice League, like Batman or Superman. A soldier was the closest thing to that in real life. After six months of war, where I was shot at daily and lost many comrades, followed by two and a half years of service of active duty, I came back home with an honorable discharge. I soon discovered that there wasn't a place for me in society anymore, because as a veteran, I became a target of hate. People call me hurtful things like baby killer or murderer. Whenever I applied for a job, the prospective employer asked what was my specialty in the Army. I would say, 11 Bravo, sir. They would ask me, what is that? And I said, imagine Rambo, one of the Hollywood effects. Did you ever kill anybody in the war, they'd ask. I'd tell them, yes, it was my job. After that, I would never hear from them again. After trying for months to gain employment without success, I realized that America has no place for heroes outside of the battlefield. When the war is over, a leopard is deemed more desirable company than a veteran. In the war, I witnessed some of the cruelest acts of humanity committed in the name of peace, like seeing the body parts of little children or the dismembered heads of innocent bystanders. And because of that, my mind lost more screws than a dryer caught in a tornado. I developed PTSD, and being unable to find a job caused deep stress and awakened thoughts of suicide. Every time I try to sleep, I will find myself in war again, looking at dead bodies. To cope with all the pressure, I turned to alcohol, then to crack cocaine. Crack will make me lose all my friends. I borrow money, promise to pay it back. I tell them I needed food, but I got high instead. I never pay them back. With my family, it was worse. I'd go to their home and steal things like jewelry and small electronic gadgets until they finally discovered me. I sold my $4,000 car for an ounce of crack, roughly $600. Soon after, I became a homeless man. As long as I had crack in my life, I was content because although the nightmares would not disappear altogether, I rarely remember them in the morning. And because of that crack became my lover, my friend, and my God. One night in early 2004, I needed a fix really bad. I started going into withdrawals. I decided to rob a convenience store, the worst decision of my life. I got hold of a cheap gun that another guy loaned me on the condition that I shared some crack with him with whatever money I got. I went into the store, and with all the military training and efficiency that I possessed, I did what I've never done before. I violated a man's sense of safety as I violently stole this money. I got caught at the crime scene. I was a good soldier, but a lousy criminal. I spent two years awaiting trial, and because I was homeless, I did not make bail. During that time, I sobered up. I regretted the robbery with all my heart. I hated my life for turning out the way it did. I wept before the judge, begging for a second chance, but instead, I received a 45-year sentence. I begged for drug treatment or mental counseling, reminding the judge that I was not a common criminal, but an honorable veteran in need of help. He denied me an opportunity at redemption, saying, you are a menace to society. I realized then and there that my service to this country meant nothing. I had risked my life in vain. I reminded the judge that when I was fighting to protect America, I was not a menace. Yet now I am, because I could not control my PTSD. I feel crushed and betrayed. I have been in prison for close to 14 years now, 
and all my so-called heroic acts of courage are meaningless. I saved my squad leader's life when I rushed to get him out of a damaged Humvee from a roadside bomb. The enemy was raining bullets in my direction, but I didn't think twice about my safety. All my military honors are worthless to me here. They are nothing more than a memory that serves no other purpose than to remind me that I was a person of value until I needed help. Oh, geez. I know we're not supposed to talk about the story in terms of what happened in the story, but it so makes me mad how we treat vets in in America. But I do want to talk about the, the moment, the moment that he comes to, the moment that changed everything, which was the moment he robbed the convenience store, of course. I mean... You know, he puts us in that framework. We get it. He's having nightmares. He's, he's got PTSD. He's they nowhere to go from help. He's exhausted his friends, his family. I mean, you know, I w- wonder what could have been different for this guy. But yes, that moment, that moment he's in the in the convenience store changed his entire life. Also, the story is so brave to write the story like that. I mean, he's he he takes responsibility for having robbed violently did he i we don't know do so, we if he actually i liked him i he's my student and i know him personally so i really like him i was wondering if you thought you know after you've heard the story do you think he's like a likable i narrator? do i think he's a likable narrator because even yeah because he he's he admits to what he did he's regrets it he yeah. wants he wants yeah. he's saying he i needed help. for a second chance he's begged for help i wish that he had stayed in the moment of the convenience store longer yeah. I wanted to see really what happened. I wanted to see his mindset. I wanted to see him struggle with pulling out that gun. What's going on in his mind. And then mind. go, yeah, to use that moment to show us his mindset, to just to stay there longer so that we really feel the convenience store moment. The same yeah. way Karen. So she's in the moment where she's face to face with this girl who reminds her of herself. I wanted to see Lewis in a moment where he was, I mean, he was in that moment. He was there, but it went so quickly. Right. Right. So just in terms of stronger writing, making this story stronger, I wish that he had lingered in the really difficult moment where he had to make a choice. Do I pull out a gun or not? Mm-hmm. And then he did. Because and, he was desperate. Right. He was des- I understand why he did. We always want to know what the narrator's thinking. Right. And they have that opportunity while they're you know, doing what they're doing to take a moment and step out and tell us what's going on in their head. You're right. That, I mean, it that was well it told, very well told. But I just wanted, and this is just instructive for everybody, to stay in those moments the hard moments stay there as long as you can to really explain flesh out those moments thank you for listening if you have a business or a startup let me help you tell that story i'll come to your office and teach all your employees how to better articulate why they do what they do because stories sell and allison's up for hire too Let her help your high school seniors write their college essays. And hey, all you writers out there, we want your story on our show. If you're inspired, enter our contest. Send us your best 1,200 words. The prompt? Secret pleasure. The deadline is coming soon, February 14th, 2018. Writing Class Radio is produced by Virginia Laura, Misha Morrell, Allison Langer, and me, Andrea Askowitz. Theme music by Ari Herstan. 
Additional music by TJ North and Paddington Bear. Writing Class Radio is sponsored by and recorded at the University of Miami School of Communication. This episode is sponsored by Albert Flynn DeSilver, author of Writing as a Path to Awakening. There's more writing class on our website, Twitter, and Facebook. Study the stories we study and listen to our craft talks. There's no better way to understand ourselves and each other than by writing and sharing our stories. Everyone has a story. What's yours? Everyone has a story. Everyone. Everyone has a story. What's yours? Everyone has a story. Everyone has a story. Stories. That's why I changed it to tell yours. Because we only need one story at a time. Okay, everyone has a story. Tell yours. I'm sorry. Everyone has a story. What's yours? looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness then check out the natural man podcast join me host mike c as we explore all areas of human wellness physical mental and emotional learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health remember your doctor works for you learn biohacks neurohacks ways to improve sleep and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.